Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. Well, good morning, uh, C4 Church. Oh, good morning, C4 Church, please. There we go. What an amazing start to our service, wouldn't you say? Unbelievable. Just phenomenal. Very thankful. We want to take a moment to welcome you online this morning, wherever you might be today, also traveling, doing shift work in another country. We're glad you're all here today, too. It's interesting in our culture, when we think about uh, food and drinks, how the media does something with it. When we go to a restaurant and it's a really hot day, we want a really cold beverage. Uh, If you uh, get one that's lukewarm, you may put up with it, or depending on your personality, you just may send it back. Uh, If you go to a restaurant and you order food, many of us would like hot food. Our culture doesn't do that so well anymore, right? Uh, It's lukewarm much of the time. And when advertisers want to communicate something, you just know it. Watch it carefully in the next week. Every time you see this, whether online or on television, what you will see is they intentionally uh, point out how cold a drink is on an ad or how hot the food is. Now, you know, of course, all of that's fake, right? Uh, The potatoes aren't potatoes, it's something else completely, I'm sure. But the the whole idea is they point out how hot or how cold something is because they're trying to communicate to us as an audience that if you buy this product, it will be cold and refreshing or hot and filling. But no one in their right advertising mind promotes something that's lukewarm. Have you ever seen that? Never. That image is the image, if you've done church for a while, you know where I'm going. That is the image that Jesus chooses to speak to the last church that he addresses out of the book of of Revelation. Now, before I get going today, I need to stop for a moment and give some context that's different than anything else we've done so far in this series. This passage this morning is significant for C4 Church. Every passage, of course, is significant. The Word of God is living, it's active, it's always relevant. But I need to give some more context. Long before we ever promoted or, or, or started advertising that we'd be going through this series, five different individuals in our church, all very different, different genders and backgrounds, and even different generations, came over about four months to the pastoral leadership and gave us this passage. Each person, not knowing the other person, not sure how to do that, came and said, I don't understand this. I'm not sure how to communicate this to you. I don't even know what words to use. But I just really feel that this verse isn't for me alone. It's for our whole church. So we heard that one time, and we hear all sorts of things, good, bad, crazy, and in between. So you take everything with a grain of salt. And then another person came. All trustworthy people, by the way. And then another person came. Another person came, another per- and we kept asking, have you talked to so-and-so? No, they, they had no clue. Why am I telling you this this morning? Well, I'd like to declare this morning, out of our spiritual gift series too, that this passage is prophetically being given to C4 at this moment in our history. This has been tested by the leadership, and we believe that this is a word for us. So you need to understand that today I'm going to preach it just like I would. I'm not going to say it's going to get more powerful because of this. I- I'm just saying... Listen very closely this morning, because though God's word is relevant and always is active, sometimes the God of heaven and earth decides to speak something specifically to an individual or a church. And I'm here saying as the senior pastor of this church, this passage is for this church in 2012. So listen and let's see what God does. 
Today, like I said, we're at the last church that Jesus chooses to speak to out of his vision in the Revelation 1. It's called a church, it's in the city, sorry, of Laodicea. You would have found this city 40 miles southwest or southeast of Philadelphia in the Valley of Lycus. Now, Laodicea, you need to know, was a very affluent city. It had uh, all sorts of connections. First of all, it had three major roads that found its sort of heart right in that city. It was along the King's Highway, and if you've been watching or listening to the series, you've noticed this. Five out of the seven series connect to each other on this great road, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, this city, though, was rich, and here's a lot of reasons why. First of all, it was a major banking center of the ancient world. So it basically had TD and RBC and whatever uh, in their downtown. They were the heartbeat of it. They were one of the main banking centers in the whole ancient Roman Empire. Second, they were a major trading center because they were connected along that same road. So the world came to them and they went to the world. But there was something more going on. They were famous for one product. After years, hundreds of years of careful breeding, they had produced an unbelievable high quality of wool. It was black and it was glossy and it was sought after. Now they made beautiful clothing and also rugs out of this clothing and they exported it to the whole known world. Now if that was not enough because they had a major trading area and they they had an amazing product and they were a banking center, if that wasn't enough, there was more. They were a very famous medical community. They had sort of the medical thing we have downtown in their city. This school became very well known for two remedies. They came up with great remedies to deal with eye infections and blindness and hearing loss and actual hearing infections or ear infections. So the world was known, knew that this city was the place to go if you had problems medically with your eyes or your ears. Religiously, they worshipped Zeus, Dionysus, Helos, Hera, Athena, and they were also, again, one of those key centers where the emperor was worshipped as the son of God and the prince of peace. A hundred years after John's death, an emperor named Commodus, if you've seen the, word, the, the movie Gladiator, you, you've seen that character, Commodus actually institutionalizes emperor worship there more and more in Laodicea. From a Jewish perspective, it's interesting also because they have one of the few recordings of actually how many Jews were in their city, religiously and ethnically. They estimated there were 7,500 Jewish males, adult males at the time, which equals between 15 and 20,000 Jewish people. So a very large, intricate Jewish community. Now Jesus shows up and he doesn't talk about any of the religious stuff at all. He decides to address something else because this city, uh, beneath all of that, is famous for one other thing. See, this city had a core value. This city was famous for and relished one thing, self-sufficiency. They were known for their money, their power, and their medicine, but they were also known, and historians talk about this, about their go-get-them attitude. They would not let anyone else help them. In 60 AD, Laodicea had a terrible natural disaster. A huge earthquake swept through the area and basically wiped out the city, devastated it. But unlike all the other cities of the time that went to Rome for life support and help, they rebuilt their city completely on their own with their own funds. And when Rome showed up, they said, thanks so much, we don't need even you. Power, money, self-sufficiency, and medicine. Now, one of the most interesting and historical connections to what Jesus is about to say doesn't happen in Laodicea, though. 
See, if you look at a map, there is actually two sister cities connected to Laodicea. One was 10 miles away, and it was called Colossae, and the other was six miles away, and it was called Heropolis. Now, Colossae was famous for another thing, fresh water. They had cool, pure water from the mountains, so they owned Perrier 2,000 years ago, okay? That is the heart of what Colossae was known for. Now, Heropolis, on the other hand, which is six miles south, was actually known for the opposite. They were known for hot springs. They were well-known. So they had the spa. They were the California spa of the time. People went there for bathing and enjoyment, but also for medical reasons. Now, what's so amazing about this, and I never knew this till this week, is that hot spring center was so large that it actually formed sort of a river. And this river would flow from Heropolis over a plateau and then actually poured over a cliff in full front of Laodicea. The cliff was 300 feet feet high and a mile wide. And it was covered with white incrustations of calcium carbonate. So it was an amazing, amazing, spectacular thing. You would look from Laodicea and you would see all this steam and this beautiful hot water pouring over this golden sort of this white golden experience. and, And people go, wow, unbelievable. Now, here's what happened though. As the water traveled from Heropolis over the cliff, it got unbelievably lukewarm. Now, if you were driving by or walking by and you'd pick up some of that water and try drinking it, you'd spit it out because it was full of sulfur. You may not know it, but if you you drank it, you'd spit it up. Now, the last thing you need to know about Laodicea is this. They had no natural water source themselves. So they had to import all their water through aqueducts and pipes from at least 6 to 10 miles away. So by the time all the water would arrive in this grand, amazing city, it was always lukewarm. With all that, Jesus now shows up to a group of people just like us gathered here today who follow Jesus and decides to speak to them. Now what's interesting, and I didn't know this either, is Either Paul established this church or or another person did. There's a good chance another person many of us have never heard about or thought about established the church in Laodicea. And we read his story in the book of Colossians. Colossians is written by Paul to the Christians in Colossae, 10 miles away. And his name is Epaphras. Colossians 4.12 reads like this. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you would stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those, notice, in Laodicea and Heropolis. So there it is, all three sister cities, and you've got Christians in all three of them. Now, many people believe that the church in Laodicea was very close to the church in Colossae relationally. And they actually had the same scriptures that Paul had written to them, the book of Colossians. And they had actually hand-copied it, and they treasured it themselves. And why is that important? I'll tell you why. It goes to what John is about to say about Jesus. Because Paul's vision of Christ in Colossians 1 and Jesus' explanation of himself in Revelation 1 is identical. So here we go. Revelation 3.14. If you've got a Bible physically or virtually, turn there and we'll get going. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He starts by saying, I am Jesus. And these are my words. Now, the first name given to Jesus, interestingly, is amen. Now, we would say that word in church during worship or if we agreed with what's being preached or we use this when we pray. We end our prayers, whether intercessory or just thanking God for food, we say amen. 
But many of us never sit back in church culture and ask, well, what does amen mean? See, the name is a grand description of Jesus. It's the full liturgical ending of all the descriptions of Jesus from Revelation 1 to Revelation 3. He is the amen. Amen means valid, true, confirmed. When you would say amen, you were saying in Greek doubly, it is true, it is true. Like, guess what? This is really true. This signals the beginning of the end of this key book, this key part of the book of Revelation. This affirms that Jesus, though, is equal to God because he shares one essence with God. Why? Because in the Old Testament, God was called the God of Amen. And God does not allow anyone to share his titles because if they share his titles, they are either him or they are false. Ever thought about that? So in Isaiah 65, 16, this is what's pronounced. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do it by the God of amen, the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land will swear by the God of truth, the God of amen. When a Jewish audience would hear Jesus say, I am the amen, they would immediately realize he was claiming to be God himself, which is either blasphemy or true. So Jesus claims, I am one with and I am the God of amen. I am the beginning and the end. And I am the amen, and let me tell you why. Because I am faithful and I am true in what I do and who I am. And oh, by the way, just to share with everyone, I'm also the ruler of God's the Father's creation. Side note. He has full authority over everything. This gets back to the Colossians connection. Have you ever read Colossians chapter 1? Jesus says that he is the ruler of God's creation. Listen to what Paul writes to the Colossians church about Jesus' authority in Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. He is the head of the body, that's the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is when we actually need to say, Amen. Jesus shows up and says, I am equal with the Father because all of God's fullness dwells in me and I'm the only being in, the, in, in and outside of time that shares the DNA of God because I am God. See, the only person who, who can handle God is himself. And so Jesus is both the agent of creation and he's the ruler of God's creation, not Rome, not any other person, not a religious group, not a think tank, and definitely not a city that has great wealth. So Jesus, who is the God of truth, and Jesus, who is the God of all power, and Jesus, who is in control of history, and Jesus, who is exalted far above any religious or philosophical system of the day, now personally shows up to speak to that church, to those that claim, that love, that claim to love him and serve him and give to him and worship him and work and live under and by his name. Jesus says, I know your deeds. He does this with every church, right? I know, because I know all things. I am, amen. 
And the truth is, you're neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Immediately, now you should catch the connection. Every person hearing this for the first time, because remember, Scripture was not, was not read, but was spoken over a congregation. So the first time the letter of Revelation arrives, they open it up, and they've heard all of what Jesus has said to the other churches. Have you ever thought about that? Oh, they're bad. Mm, bad. Mm. Listen to how bad they are. Because like, it's all public information. It's like reading someone's Facebook. They have listed and heard every church, and they're like, oh, we're awesome. And Jesus shows up and says, I am the great amen. And here's what I'd like to say to you, Laodicea. You're not cold or hot. And they go, oh no, Heropolis, Colossae. You're not hot and healing and powerful like the lime springs in Heropolis. And you're not cold and refreshing like the water in Colossae. You are lukewarm. You're anemic. You have no purpose. Your water is the water you complain about all the time that you have in your house. It's the same water that's pouring off the cliff. It's disgusting. I was taught, of course, growing up in church, this and others, that to be hot was good and to be cold was bad. Did you hear that growing up if you did church? If you were really hot, you loved Jesus, you were on fire for Jesus, right? And if you were cold, you were disconnected from Jesus and and you were running away from him. But but lukewarm, you, you had two feet, you know, one foot in each world and there's just no middle ground. So either get really hot with hot with Jesus or cold with the world, but don't be lukewarm. Well, that preaches well. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's asking this church and all of us, if you are a Christian this morning, to be hot and cold, refreshing, powerful, life-giving, and healing. Those springs brought healing and medicine to the nations, and that water brought refreshment and life. None of us can live on this earth without profound water, right? Jesus shows up and says, I want the church to be both. This is not about spiritual temperature, This is about being ineffective as a Christian. It is about the lack of impact, though you claim to walk a Christian life. It is the lack of power that is present. Jesus shows up and says, so because you are lukewarm, you are neither hot or cold, and I expect both, by the way, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Notice he says you are lukewarm. Not you may be lukewarm, or possibly you are. He's saying, you are. So because you are already, I'm now here to give terms. I love this translation, I want water that will refresh me. But you remind me instead of the water you complain about all the time, you make me want to puke. Now is this saying that this is the final intention or desire of Jesus? No. It's a very strong warning, and, and it's simple. Lukewarmness is not to be endured. This is not a hollow threat either. Jesus may end up doing this if there is not a change. The threat, though, is a loving threat. It's given to motivate, to move his people to to a place of action. One scholar said, can you imagine it being read in the church? Probably in a house or a villa. They didn't have buildings at that time. Maybe they were still in the synagogue and hadn't been kicked out yet. So they're there, and as this is being read, they literally look up, and they look south through the window. And they can actually see the plumes of smoke. And they can actually see the water pouring over that unbelievable experience, that natural phenomena. And he is saying the water that is sulfur-laden that none of you would drink, you would spit it out of your mouth, and yet is also so lukewarm, it's lost its power by the time it goes off the cliff. That's you. Jesus uses the very nature, the very environment to point out to the people what he really thinks about their Christian condition. This is written to those who say they know, not those who don't. 
Jesus keeps going and says, so you say that you're rich. You say that you've acquired wealth and you, and you don't need a thing. You habitually say these things even as my followers. You look and act more like your culture or, or your city than my kingdom. Yes, your city is very self-reliant. I'll admit that, Jesus would say. You're very self-confident, but oh, by the way, you're blind. Yes, back to the earthquake in 60 AD, Jesus would say, yes, I know that you actually declared formally to Rome, I or we do not need a thing. That is actually the phrase that was sent back to Rome. And yet the problem is self-reliance is the most dangerous thing to your own spiritual walk. In our world today, self-reliance is worshipped. It is deemed as success the more self-reliant you become. It is a core value, at least in the West. But the problem is, in our movement as Jesus followers, self-reliance cuts us off from God and cuts us off from the power of God that allows us to have the character of Christ, the gifts of the Spirit, and profound impact outside of the local church. It brings joy and hope when you actually are reliant on Jesus, but self-reliance chokes out spiritual power. Jesus tells them the truth. I know you think you're rich and you've acquired wealth and you've declared not only as a city but even in my presence, you're just fine. Your Christian walk is great. But here's the truth. You do not hear it. You do not realize. You just don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I know you're secure in your affluence. I know that you have lots of money and you're just fine. But in heaven's view, I need to tell you what you really look like. You're wretched and pitiful. You are in need of great mercy. You are poor. You may have tons of money because you're part of the banking industry, but actually, spiritually, you're poor. You're blind, even though your medical school is famous for actually producing things that make people see and hear. And, and oh, by the way, I know that you are a fashion icon 2,000 years ago, and you have great clothing, but here's the truth. You are naked. And by the way, in our culture, being naked is either celebrated or embarrassment, right? In their culture, it was the utter form of humiliation. You are naked. See, all five images mean the same thing. They thought they did it by themselves. When Jesus looked upon his church, not the city, his church, those who made up the Laodicean community, he said, here is my view because I am the amen. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He turns around and says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and to put salve on your, salve on your eyes so you can see. Again, all the industries are brought to bear. But here's the point. Intimacy with Jesus. A strong relationship with God the Father. A strong faith has strong action. And it always starts in one place that is so unnatural to us as human beings. Humility. Submission. There must be a willingness to ask for help. To ask God to do anything. There must be a simple request of Jesus. Tell me, Jesus, the great amen. What do I really look like to you? 
Jesus, tell me, what does my walk from heaven's view look like? Not what other people say about me, good or bad. Not what I think or what I say. Not how I evaluate myself. Not what the pastoral said. No, no, no. What do you say over me? Jesus, the great amen. True and faithful witness. Lord of all, what do you think of my Christian walk? And by the way, we would ask, what do you really think, Jesus, of C4 Church? All these symbols of gold and white clothing and solve are all connected to one word, repentance. Repentance leads to real, powerful life change. It leads to walking with Jesus. John Stott, who was reflecting on this passage, who just died in the last little while, one of the greatest leaders we've had in the European West as an Anglican evangelical, said these very difficult words when he preached on this. Here's the great alternative, friends, which confronts every thoughtful person. Listen close. To be half-hearted and complacent and only casually interested in the things of God is to prove oneself not a Christian at all. And to be so distasteful to Christ, to be in danger of vehement rejection. But to be wholehearted in one's devotion to Christ, having opened the door, he speaks about the whole passage, having opened the door and submitted oneself without reserve to him, is to be given the special privilege of both eating with him here and reigning with him forever. But here's the choice you cannot avoid. You must either throw open your life and the doors of your life completely to him or close it in, the face, in his face. There, no, there, there is no other option. Jesus doesn't change his mind. Nor does he soften his position. But he does put this harsh rebuke in context. Verse 19 is so important that we hear this this morning. Those whom I say it loud. What? That was weak. That was lukewarm. Say it again. Those whom I love. Those whom I love, I rebuke in discipline. Those who I deeply care about, those who I'm really in relationship with. In other words, we all know it takes a lot of relationship to make, uh, on, it takes a lot of work to make a relationship honest. It needs emotion and it needs action. And Jesus is coming and saying, here is the truth about you. And then says, I deeply, hear me in the middle of this, I love you so deeply. So because we are in a marriage relationship, so because my love is genuine for you, repent and turn back and look at me. This is an urgent call to do a 180. Remember, repentance starts with your mind. Repentance is about changing the way you think because we govern our lives out of what we think. We act out of what we believe. And repentance is about allowing the God of the universe, the Holy Spirit who is in us and his word to become the very place where our thinking is transformed and changed and we move in a different direction. You have not repented if you have not changed we were talking about this in our connect group. There is a grand difference between confession and repentance. Confession is admitting your sin. Repentance is walking away from it. Jesus comes and says, I'm not just interested in your ongoing confessions, though I have great promises about that. I am looking for a people that will repent. And then Jesus says, why do I do all of this? Well, Jesus comes and he says, I want honesty. I want authenticity. I want friendship. I want a heaven-driven power and purpose in my people. He doesn't reject us. He, he, he wants so much more from us. Verse 20. And by the way, if you've been, let me make this clear. 
this now is the verse that was given five times over. I'm not declaring our church is lukewarm. This is what was given. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and that person with me. Here I am. The old King James is, behold, wake up. I am right here. Yes, I am God. Listen closely. Yes, I am God. And my presence is everywhere. I'm omnipresent. But I'm now making my presence known to you. This is the difference between walking with God over a lifetime and those small certain times of revival when God is there and you just know it. It's what happened at the transfiguration. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and Acts 4. It is Jesus personally speaking to these seven churches in detail. It is a season that this church is entering into but will not be here forever. It is when God's presence becomes not just theologically theoretically there, it is palpable. Jesus says to this church that he's standing at the door and knocking. Knocking at the door of their life and knocking at the door of their church and he is hoping, he is longing for response. Not because he needs it. He's just fine. Because he knows we need it. Notice he starts with the church but then becomes deeply personal. Notice. He says, if anyone... Not just the whole church. If any individual in the church would heed what I'm saying, there will be great benefit. He does not presume the whole church is going to say yes to his voice. The question is, can you even hear God's voice anymore? Can you hear God's voice in his written word? Can you hear his promptings? Do you hear God speak through his community? And if you do hear him, do you obey him? If you welcome him in, will you be different? And the answer is yes. It was October this year, and uh, I was here at one of our prayer meetings. For two years, this church has been praying that God would renew us individually, revive our church, which we're going to talk about tonight. I'm going to expand on that this evening at the encounter night, and then awaken the area where multiple people, hopefully tens and then hundreds and then thousands of people, encounter the living Jesus. And by the way, just side note, anyone? Okay, just saying. Okay, so what happens? I'm there in October, I'm there, it's probably 25, 30 people that night. We're praying for renewal, revival, relationships, with uh, awakening. I'm back there, beside the soundboard. I'm not with the main group. And we always start by asking, asking God to do whatever he needs to do in our own life. So I was there, and I was by myself that night, I wasn't leading. So I went to pray, I got on my knees and said, Jesus, revive me. Renew me. Then something happened very unexpectedly. Uh, Gabriel didn't show up, by the way. It's all good. Uh, but I had an image in my mind. Uh, an image that um, I, I knew had to be from the Lord. I hadn't thought about it, read about it. You know, I just, and there was a door. My eyes were closed and I was praying. And right when I said, oh God, please, I, I'm begging you. And it was a heartfelt but non-emotional prayer. And immediately I saw this door and Jesus knocking on it. Now, I didn't see his face, but I know, I know where this is going. I am a pastor, you know. And I said, oh, this is awesome. Like, he's going to come eat with me. Great. So immediately, the small division, whatever you want to call it, flipped to the other side. I expected, of course, to find myself ready to open the door, put my hand on the handle, and come on in, and Jesus and I are going to hang out. And 
was shocked to see what I saw. A younger version of myself. And I had both of my hands against the door like this. And both my feet planted. Was disturbed by the image. Very disturbed. I said, that's not me. I, I love Jesus. I want him in my life. And I heard the whisper, oh no you don't. So the prayer meeting ended and I was quite disturbed. I, I didn't feel beat up or humiliated. It's interesting, Jesus never humiliates people, right? So uh, within the last, that week, I got together with Dave and, and Beth. I said, can we pray? I, they said, sure, and we met here. And I, and I told them what had happened. I was shocked by this image. So we prayed. And at that moment, things got very clear through his word and through promptings. I said, Jesus, I love you so much. I've given my life to you. I serve you. I even work for you. Like, I know this passage. I'm not Laodicea. Hmm. Jesus said, um, you don't want me. And I said, oh, I do. He said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. It's dangerous arguing with God. Side note. <laughs> he said, no, you don't. So, well, tell me then. Tell me. Uh, you know, I'm, I have a very good Hebraic relationship with God. I just yelled, tell me. Beth and Dave are just praying there with me. And he said, you know, John, and I referred to this in the Philippians series, you're so bitter at Christians. You're so bitter at people who left C4. You're so bitter at what people have said about you. you. You hold on to this anger and this angst and this bitterness and the politics to it and the emotion and the slander and, you know, you won't let me in there. And I, I found myself saying, it's mine. Oh. And Jesus said, see, you don't want to eat with me. Because you want to own that. And it's killing your walk and it's killing your ministry. So as I wrestled that through, because of course we believe as a culture we get to own our own pain, right? And our own stuff. I wrestled with Jesus and I cried. I mean, you can talk to Dave and Beth. I wrestled and I said, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And he said, it is hindering me and you. And finally, I just laid it down. I thought I was done. Good, that's over. No. Jesus then showed up and talked to me again about past pain. Really deep pain that happened to me as a kid, and, and I won't go into that, but I was just so wrestling with that. I couldn't, I couldn't believe the emotion that was coming up. And he, and, he, and, he, and he just said, like, I've allowed things to happen to you, and I was crying out to God, why have you allowed such terrible things to happen to me as a kid? <laughs> Jesus said, it's for my glory, and I was shocked by it. Such an un-North American answer, Right? And I remember sitting there, and right when I asked him, and I cried out about this, amazingly, I heard the synoptic gospel account where the disciples turned to Jesus coldly and said, this man is blind. Why is he blind? Is he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, oh, neither. I have allowed this for my glory. And right when I uttered those words, Dave looked up at me and said, in a shocked fashion, I'm reading those verses over you right now. And God said, even what you went through as a child that was not right, I am going to use it for your glory. But you can't hold on to it any longer. It's not your pain anymore. It's for my glory. I am your master. I was shocked. Well, yeah, but oh my goodness. Like I thought I was okay with all this. I said, well, then we're really done. No. He got closer and I trembled. I mean, I'll admit that. I physically trembled because of God's presence. 
And then Jesus said, there's one last thing, a demand of you. And the word was demand. I was like, what, Lord? Like, what else could there be? And he said, you have a backup plan. I said, what? He said, you, I'm at the door and I'm knocking. You're praying for the revival of this whole church and you're praying for an awakening, but it starts with you if you want it. So here's the deal. And I said, what, Lord, is it? He said, you have a backup plan. You have said in the back of your mind, if the church hurts you long enough, you'll just walk away and hurt them all. And it may happen in 20 years, but you've always said in the end, there's always a back door. And I was like, oh my God. I have said that. I don't have a plan. I just, it was there. I never thought about it. Other than in dark moments, and God said, there is no back door. I am your master. I have called you to this. I own you. The door is closed. You must let me in, and this must die. An hour and a half. And I just went to talk to Jesus about opening a door. You see, I have a long way to go. Am I great? No. I have lots of things, lots of issues. Am I completely healed? No. But here's the point. I was calling out to God to do something profound in this church and in my life, and I didn't even realize my own state that I was holding on to so much stuff that was my own sin and other people's sin and past hurt, and it was completely clogging what was trying to be done by heaven, and Jesus came and knocked at the door, and I said, oh, I'm so open, and realized I was so not open. But I'm here to declare to you today as a fellow journeyer that I am not happier, but I am more joyful. Because I've learned that Jesus isn't just to be loved, he's to be trusted. Jesus came and knocks at the door of my life. He knocks at the door of yours, Laodicea. And he says, I want to do one thing. And I thought I wanted it, and I don't think I did. I wanted to, to dine. I wanted to dine with him. It's amazing. It's, it means a long supper. It's where conversation lingers. It's, it's the real thing. It's not takeout meal. It's not a snack. It's where Jesus comes. See, Jesus loves us and wants us. But even as Christians, we need to be in the place where we'd let him do anything and everything. We, we need to say to Jesus, my money, you have the conversation. You're welcome in. My job, you can come in. My family, how we think, how we live, our view of sexuality, our view of theology, our, our view of history, our pain, our dreams, our good, our bad. It is when Christians get to the place where they don't talk about the lordship of Jesus. They actually enact the lordship of Jesus and ask him to do whatever he must. And I even was praying it and still didn't believe it in my heart, but God, because he is beautifully merciful, still shows up and does it for us. Jesus is knocking. Here's my question to you. Why are some of you so resistant to him? It's Jesus, everyone. It's not a stranger, a thief, an abuser, a liar. He's the God of amen. He's the God of truth. He's faithful and true. There is no wickedness in him at all. To him who overcomes, I will give the right, Jesus said to this church, to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down on my father, on, uh, with my father on his throne. Jesus says, the relationship that I have with my father, you will have with me. This is again the grand culmination of all the promises that bind all of them together in the seven churches. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
Jesus, in this series, we learn, is transcendent and imminent. He is the Lord of all, and yet he's deeply close. See his personal affection. See his call to action. See his call for conversation. See that he does this to those that claim to know him. The question is, do you hear him? And if you do, is it even getting clearer? A few thoughts, then I'm done. In this passage, Jesus shows up to believers and asks them, do they even realize that they're blind, and gives them invitation. Find yourself in the story. These people are Christians, good people, people like us, and they thought they were fine, really good, but they actually weren't. This is not a declaration that C4 Church is completely blind. I'm not saying that. But this is a call to ask Jesus personally and in your connect groups about your own condition also. If you never recognize your blindness, there's never ever hope for healing. Twitter that, please. If you do not recognize your blindness, you will never have hope for healing. The question is, will you even ask? Will you listen if he does answer? See, God's intimacy and his power with us is connected to letting him talk first, openly. Freedom and joy comes when we hear and respond. My brother-in-law stopped me last week in a Tim Hortons parking lot, and he ran right up to the window. Dave and I were in the car, and he says, I have, a, I have a question for you. I said, bring it, Matt, bring it. And he said, I don't get one thing. I said, what is it? Joy and worship. You, you, you said this whole thing was about that. Where is it? A phenomenal question. Here's the point. Here's the answer. This is what I shared with him. Worship isn't singing. Worship is living a Christian life. And a Christian life that is worshipful is full of repentance, obedience, which produces joy. The old Baptist Sunday school song actually is true. The first stanza, trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus, joyful in Jesus. You want to understand the whole heartbeat of the joy connection to this? It's this. Let Jesus speak without reservation and let him set you free. And you will have joy. Jesus comes and says to this church and to some of us, blindness is a condition that can be overcome. But then he quickly reminds the Laodiceans and us also that wealth and self-reliance are roadblocks to revival. Now, is this saying that if you are unbelievably qualified or gifted in something or that you have money, that this is automatically lukewarmness? Absolutely not. But let me say this very clearly this morning. You should lean in at this moment. The more gifted you are, and the more wealthy you are, the more difficult it is to rely on God. That's just the truth. If your wealth and your giftedness is not submitted to Jesus, it will choke out the power of the Spirit. That's why Jesus says you cannot serve money and me. These things are not wrong. And some of you are saying, well, that's not me. I'm not wealthy. Well, guess what? In comparison to the rest of the world, you are unbelievably wealthy. The Laodiceans had struggles because they had allowed their self-reliance and their wealth to become more important than relying on God for spiritual power, and their wealth and their self-reliance had become God. One person wrote, prayerlessness or devotional times that are dry, which is so typical of many of us in the West, stems from our lack of our sense of our need before God. Our material abundance, if we are not careful, can actually become the very source of spiritual poverty as it did for the Christians of Laodicea. Why in the world would you pray, oh God, give me daily bread? I've got loblaws, thank you very much. Really? Revival begins when we ask Jesus without condition, what do I look like? 
Then when we get honest about the potential danger of self-reliance and money and we submit them down and we say, I need God's power, not just intellectually or reading a devotional book. No, I really need it. When there is a desperation that begins to form among God's people, you knew something is new. Some of you are saying, but John, what does lukewarmness look like in our culture? What does it look like for me? I want to really know. Well, amazing, I worked so hard trying to find something. I, I couldn't, and then at the very end, I found this description. Please listen, you online too, listen carefully. To be lukewarm is to live as if what you presently know and experience of Jesus is enough. Let me say that again. You are lukewarm if you are currently living your life that you're just okay about what you know about Jesus and what you've experienced with Jesus. If you have no need or desire to press in further, no need to desire to seek after God, if you have little or no longing to pray or fast, little or no longing to break, break free from sin you know is wrong, if you are satisfied with your current depth of the Holy Spirit and His power and His gifts and His character, if you're satisfied right now, if you live like you're just okay about how much you know about God the Father, then you're lukewarm. The Laodiceans were content with their life as it was, and they weren't even ashamed to declare that they had actually achieved most of it anyway. Lukewarmness happens when you just say, my Christian walk at this moment is great, and I need nothing else. Or you say, I know I need to change, or I know I need a deeper walk with Christ, but I'm just too busy, tired, disoriented, uh, fill in the blank. Lukewarmness. The call is, would you ask Jesus? Because here's the truth. Jesus is walking in to C4 Church, not because we're special, but because he's decided to. There's an old cry out of the prophets, and I end with this, that says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Jesus is the God of this church. We worship him, we celebrate him, but sometimes in God's sovereignty, he shows up only for a period to meet with his people. He will always continue, but in a unique way. And I'm saying to you, as one of your pastors, and as the leader under the elders of this church, seek the Lord while he will be found, because it will not always be like this. Ask the question today, when you leave, Jesus, what do I really look like? Ask the question today, sincerely, has my wealth or my self-reliance become the stronghold that has killed the work of the Spirit in my life? Ask the question, am I lukewarm? And if I am, oh Jesus, give me a heart for repentance and help me want to obey you. Why? Because here's Jesus' promise to you and to myself. He wants to come in and eat with you for real. The living God of heaven and earth wants to know you, meet with you, set you free, bring you freedom. He is not guaranteeing all victory in this life, but he is guaranteeing joy and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is his promise to us. So as now Nikki comes up, I just say this. Do you have ears to hear? Do you have ears to hear? Because honestly, I don't tell my own story, by the way, to make myself like I've arrived. I have not. I'm just using it to show you I was praying for something and I didn't even know the implications. Listen to our master. He wants to do a new thing in this church. So let's pray and we'll see what he does today, this afternoon, And interestingly, tonight too. Uh, So Jesus, uh, as Joanna rightly prayed before I came up, you are a good father. 
and you do say that if a, if, if a bad father or, or, or a disconnected father from you at least would give good gifts to his kids, how much more would you give us the Holy Spirit if we ask? So simple prayer today. I ask you, God, on behalf of myself and my family here, these words. Number one, God, are we blind? And I still asked, I mean, I was asking last night of you, Jesus, am I more blind? Do I, what else, where else? Am I blind? Are we blind? Jesus, talk to us about our wealth. Talk to us about our self-reliance. I mean, thank you, Lord, that we are, you've so blessed us, and thank you for these gifts, both financially and ability-wise. But God, like, if it is choking out your work, change us. And lastly, you know, Lord, we, we pray Again, that you, Holy Spirit, would talk to those who are lukewarm. And I pray that no accusation would fall on those that are not. But if people are genuinely lukewarm, they're satisfied with how much they know about you or your Holy Spirit or or the Father. They're satisfied theologically and they're satisfied experientially. If people among us, Jesus, resist you because they've written you off as dangerous or emotional or you fill in the blank, God, deal with their fear and set people free. I pray in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would come, the Spirit of Christ would bring Jesus into our church, and that Jesus would do great and new things. And I would ask you, God, that many people would eat with Jesus in a new way, and it would have to be Jesus. And then I pray out of that that an awakening would take place that we could never, ever invent in this church. I ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to the ministry, visit our website at www.c4church.com. 